This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. You all have a seat, and good morning to you all, and good morning to any of you who are listening online. Grateful for the break after Easter. It's good to be back home with you all. And before the Easter break, uh, we were studying and making our way through the book of Acts, and I want to pick up where we left off there. We were at the very end of chapter 22. If you notice uh, in the outlines or if you received the worship planner this week, you know I'm taking a really big bite this morning. We're going from the last verse of chapter 22, which is verse 30, all the way through chapter 23 and 29. It's really one long uh, story, one account in this, in this narrative. And I want to remind you of where we were three weeks ago, and that was that uh, in that previous section, uh, we saw how Paul lived up to his principle that to the Jews I become as a Jew in order to win Jews, and he did that when he arrived at Jerusalem with the offering from the Gentile churches. And how is it that he became like a Jew? Well, remember, he honored their consciences. Uh, there were thousands of, thousands of believing Jews or Christian Jews in Jerusalem, and their consciences were still bound to some of the Jewish customs. And so in the interest of unity, Paul went ahead and participated in a purification rite, though he himself understood that it was not necessary, uh, but he went ahead and did so for their sake. But you remember, things didn't go as planned. (laughs) Um, When he went about that, jealous, unbelieving Jews, that is, non-Christian Jews, were there, and they recognized Paul, and they recognized somebody who was with Paul, because they were Jews from Asia. And so they falsely accused Paul of having defiled the temple. They said he took a Greek into the temple. He did not, but they used that against him. They drug him out of the temple. They were just about to kill Paul uh, when word came to the Roman tribune, uh, Claudius Lysias, and he sent Roman soldiers in there, and they saved Paul's life. Do you remember that? Uh, Paul amazingly asked for permission to speak to this crazy mob. And it was granted to him to do so. He began to tell his testimony of how Jesus came into his life. But his, and they listened carefully for a while. But as soon as he got to the statement that the Lord had sent him to the Gentiles, that was it. They blew their tops again. And uh, so Lysias uh, saved Paul once again. And, uh, and what he decided to do was get to the bottom of why these Jews were so aggravated why they wanted to kill Paul. And so in a normal Roman customary way, they believed no one ever told the truth unless you beat it out of them. So they began to flog Paul. They stretched him out. Remember, they were about to flog him as the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, there's many parallels between Paul's experience in in Jerusalem and Jesus. But just before they began to tear at him with those whips, this time Paul said, I am a Roman citizen. And so they backed off because it was... Very bad news to do that uh, to a Roman citizen. Verse 29 at the end of chapter 22 says, So those who were about to examine him. What a nice way to refer to flogging someone, huh? We're just going to examine him a little bit. (laughs) 
Those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen. In other words, indeed, it was true, and that he had bound him, and that was something you could not do. And so now we pick it up in verse 30. Let's read to, from 30 to verse 11. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he, not why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down to set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. We read from Josephus and other historical sources that Ananias was quite a corrupt high priest. Remember, not all high priests were there because they were very spiritual individuals. Some were appointed by Rome. Uh, so then Paul said to him, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Well, those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. There's a lot of debate about how Paul didn't know. Was it his eyes or had he not been in Jerusalem or was this a sarcastic statement? I'm not going to debate that. Just whatever happened, that's what happened. And then Paul said, after he said that, when Paul perceived at that moment that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, that is the the council, the Sanhedrin, had both groups, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided. Why is that? Verse 8, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Well, then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisee party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? They were talking about his uh, testimony when he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. And when the dissension became violent, <clears throat> this is a gathering of the most spiritual leaders in Jerusalem. <laughs> and when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Now some wonder whether or not this was Paul's strategy all along or whether he just said what he said, that really he was on trial for preaching the resurrection, and that's just what resulted. Either way, the point was what came about is they were trying to kill him again. And once again, the Roman tribune saves his life. And the key verse of this whole account going all the way to chapter 24 is the next statement, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Well, that was a tremendous moment, I'm sure, for Paul. And what follows after this this encounter with the Lord Jesus in prison, what follows is the, the account of how Paul's journey to Rome began, uh, which the Lord promised them there in verse 11. 
It all began the next morning when uh, a plot to kill him again was, uh, was formed, uh, but it was overheard by Paul's nephew, and his nephew told Claudius Lysias, the Roman uh, uh, tribune again, and he saved his life once again. And then he decided to send Paul to Felix, the governor. And so we pick that up <coughs> at verse 23. He called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. That would be like 9 or 10 p.m. of that evening. And also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. What a strange experience for Paul. The Jews are trying to tear him to pieces. The Romans, <laughs> the Romans are the ones who save him. And in the middle of the night, he's traveling with 200 soldiers to protect him. Uh, and off they went. And then we're told that <coughs> Claudius Lysias wrote a letter to Felix, and he explained the whole story to Felix about what had happened. And there towards the end of chapter 23, we're told that Felix received the letter and he read it. <clears throat> and then the next day, uh, he called the Jewish council. Uh, he, well, he sent for them. And a few days later, they arrived, uh, Ananias, and they presented their case before Felix, the governor, against Paul. And Paul once again presented his case. And he, <clears throat> he tells uh, the, his story once again with accuracy and he once again mentions the resurrection. Uh, and it's then that we're told that Felix, verse 22 of chapter 24, he had a rather accurate knowledge of the way. That is to say, when Paul <clears throat> began to describe and speak again about the resurrection of Jesus, he's heard this story. He had an accurate understanding, pretty much, of the way, uh, of, of, of Christianity. And so what he did is he put them off, that is, he told everyone to go back where they came from. And he said, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, then I will decide your case. Well, then <clears throat> we're told in verse 27, how long did this go on? When two years had elapsed. And we're told in between there, Paul was brought to speak to Felix many times. But he was in prison there in Caesarea for two years. <clears throat> when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Well, there's the whole account. That's the next scene, if you would, in this biblical narrative. You think about this for a moment, okay? For a long time, we've been told, uh, Paul had hoped and prayed to reach Rome with the gospel. This was his holy ambition. And he went to Jerusalem with the hope that they would be able to send him on his way. And there it turns into this awful reception. And it threw everything into, into doubt. In fact, the people he thought would help him are the ones that got, others among them got angry uh, against him. And it became a disaster. And it's Rome who saves his life. The very nation that the Jews hate. <clears throat> and so there he is. And I'm sure he was doubting that he would make it to Rome. Every time he sought to vindicate the gospel, it just kind of blew up in his face, and it turned out to, re uh, to bring about more and more hostility. But what we see in verse 11 is the answer always to how then did the gospel continue to spread? Remember, that's Luke's primary concern in this narrative. He's showing Theophilus, 
the original reader, and everyone else, how is it that the gospel spread from Jerusalem to the ends of the world, to the Roman Empire? Well, here's how. When his servants were the most despondent, when, when it seemed like the gospel was in most peril, when Paul seemed like his life was in peril, Jesus, the resurrected and ascended Savior, came to his side. That's how the gospel continued to spread. The Lord knows his servant, and he can come to them and comfort them. And I realize in a room this size, and maybe some of you at home, you find yourself in a similar situation, not in the sense of being imprisoned, but in the sense of your own fears, concerns about an uncertain future, or uh, not sure of your place in the body of Christ, the church, and not sure how God is planning to use you, work through your life for, for the sake of the mission or how you might solve some of your problems in this confusing moment in our culture. Well, the point of this whole story is right there in verse 11, and that is that Jesus, the risen Lord, knows how to reassure his servants. He knows how re to reassure his people. And it's true that Paul's situation was very specific, and it is different than ours, but right underneath the surface of what the Lord said to Paul in verse 11, <clears throat> there are things that apply to every Christian. What was the affirmation that the Lord brought him? What was the assurance that, uh, that, that comforted Paul? It was three affirmations. In verse 11, the Lord affirmed his knowledge, Paul's situation, his presence with Paul, and his divine sovereignty over the circumstances that Paul was facing. And so it is today. Would you see in verse 11 this comfort, this reassurance in your life that God knows his servant, God is with his servant, and God controls the circumstances surrounding his servant's life. The first affirmation, let's start there. That is what? That God knows. God knows and sees the circumstances in Paul's life. Notice it says he stood by him. And first of all, I just want to say that that implies that this was a literal appearance of the risen Lord. In other words, in other places, it was a vision or a dream. But here he is manifest to him, himself to him. And God demonstrates his awareness of Paul's life and circumstances because of the timing of when he comes to him, first of all. The timing. He came at, to him at a very strategic point in Paul's life in mission. He comes to Paul right after this catastrophe in Jerusalem, right after he is imprisoned, and right before, and Paul doesn't know this, but right before a plot is being put together to kill Paul, and he's going to have to escape in the middle of the night. The Lord knows, and he has perfect timing. He sees the details of Paul's life, and likewise with your life and my life. The Lord sees and knows the circumstances. I know it doesn't always feel that way. Or what I mean is, I guess there's times it doesn't seem that way because 
we, we, we struggle with the way things are going in our life, and maybe it seems like God's silent. We're trying to uh, discern what, what is going on here or the why. You know, why? Those, we, we never know all the whys, <laughs> but it can make us feel insecure, and that's why we read earlier from Isaiah 40 when Chris read that, because that is often the experience of God's people. It was the experience of God's people in, in the wilderness or the experience of Israel at different occasions. Here the prophet Isaiah, remember what Chris read, it says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? Why do you say that? Why do you think your way is hidden from the Lord and that my right or the justice that I'm due is disregarded by God, by my God? Have you not known have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. It's not that he's resting. <laughs> and he goes on to say, his understanding is unsearchable. Implying what? God is omniscient. God knows and sees all things and he not only knows and sees your circumstances, but he knows what you need in those circumstances. For he goes on to say, the prophet does, in verse 29, he gives power to the faint. He knows who's faint, and he knows what they need. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. In other words, God not only sees things, but he analyzes things. He, he's aware. He diagnoses your heart, your situation, and he knows what you need. Perhaps you've found yourself in a, in a discussion with a brother or sister in the Lord, and what we might call a counseling situation. I don't mean a necessarily a formal counseling thing, but just trying to help a brother or sister. And after talking with a brother or sister for a while, you come back, you think, I just... I don't know what he needs or what she needs. I'm not sure what to say to her, what to say to him. Or if you're a parent and you have an infant child who's sick who can't yet say what he or she feels, you know that feeling where you're like, I don't know what's going on with him or her. They're just bawling all the time. But I can't discern what's wrong. The Lord searches the hearts. He alone knows the hearts, and his diagnosis is more than awareness, it's, it's a profound understanding of human nature and our struggles. And so he knows what we need, and he doles out his medicine to us. Now, he doled out his medicine to Paul in a way that he's not necessarily going to dole it out to you and me, and that is that he, he comes and he manifests his glorious presence with him and speaks to him. How does... How does how does the Lord dole out his medicine to us now to comfort us or to reassure us? He does so by the Spirit's power speaking through his Christ-exalting word. The gospel, the good news, the scriptures, all scriptures God-breathed and profitable for, for correction, for training, for, for walking in righteousness. And we remember that. And so as God reveals Christ to us in his word and all his sufficiency, his glory, his power, his nature, uh, and so forth. There he comforts us. And so it may not come in the same way, the medicine that is to, as it does to Paul, but it's no less effective, no less healing and powerful and sustaining. 
Well, what did Paul need that night? Paul needed encouragement, and he needed courage. He didn't realize he'd need more courage the very next day. And it's humorous almost how the Lord saves his life by his little nephew. <laughs> but that's how the Lord does it. And the Lord knows what Paul needs. And that Greek in present imperative there of take courage, uh, that, that speaks of a need for continuing courage in the face of some ongoing hardship. You might translate that, keep up your courage. Keep it up. You need to keep going. This is very reminiscent of the time when the Lord spoke to Paul uh, when he was in that great ancient city of Corinth, the city of great orators, and, and there he, uh, he was feeling uh, broken and, and, uh, and, and, and discouraged by what he had experienced. And it's very similar context because there some unbelieving Jews again began to cause him great trouble. But we're told in, in the book of Acts in chapter 18 and verse 9, the following, that the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. There it is again. Do not be afraid. Take courage. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Well, I, this is what I want to say. That if you're a Christian, you need to understand that you are never outside of the Lord's gaze. Never. Well, we had read from Psalm 139, if I go to the heavens, you're there. If I descend to the pit, to Sheol, you are there. If I, if I find myself in absolute pitch darkness, you're there. You are never outside the Lord's gaze. Jesus said, I know my sheep. He indeed is the good shepherd who's aware of our condition, your condition. Speaking of the Father, you are never outside the heavenly Father's gaze. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 8, your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. You are never outside the gaze of the Holy Spirit. Paul said, in 1 Corinthians 2, the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. So certainly, He knows your situation and your heart. So, Christian, you are never outside of the gaze of the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He is fully aware. He sees and so, as we think about this scene here that was taking place there in Caesarea, as confusing as things might have felt for, for uh, Claudius Lysias, who's still trying to understand what is going on here, and as dark and foreboding as things might have uh, seemed to Paul uh, uh, when he found himself in prison, the point is this, it is all clear to the Lord. <laughs> It is all absolutely clear to the Lord. How confusing for Paul. Rejected by his own people, saved by the nation his people hated. <laughs> and he finds himself in this dark prison. What a strange turn of events. One can only imagine what kind of things were churning over and over in his mind. 
I imagine doubts about ever reaching Rome entered his mind. Is this it? Is it going to end in this context? Will I ever get to fulfill my ambition? It's right then when the Lord came to him. Why? Because the Lord knows his servants. He knows their circumstances. And the second affirmation is that the Lord uh, is present with his servants. He affirms his presence with them. For it says there that the Lord stood by him. Stood by him. It's one thing to, to, to know that God sees and knows. It's another thing to know and understand and believe that God cares and that he is near. That he cares and that he is near. We can see there that the Lord, the Lord gave Paul this, this exhortation. He said, take courage or keep up your courage, but don't miss the fact that he also gives him a commendation. It's almost like he comes to him like a proud father, and he, he commends him. How did he commend him? Well, he says, as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. In other words, it may have seemed like a mess to you. It didn't go how you expected, but guess what? You did it. <laughs> you testified to me the facts about me, about his death, burial, and resurrection in Jerusalem. And that's why I sent you there, you see. And sometimes it all looks messy and, and it all was confusing and your plans got thrown out the window, you see. But the point here is that, that the Lord commends Paul to encourage him. You fulfilled your calling here. He speaks to him almost like uh, a father when he says, take courage, keep going forward. Like when I taught some of my kids to ride a bicycle and you run alongside them and even though they're wobbling all over the place, you say, keep going. <laughs> You're doing fine. And so the Lord commends Paul. That must have been tremendously comforting. And it would be an echo of what he said to him in Corinth in chapter 18, which I just read, where he said, for I am with you. I am with you. Beloved, when Christ calls you into his kingdom, if you're a Christian, when Christ calls you into his kingdom and into his family, he does not leave you alone from there on to make your pilgrimage to heaven without him. <laughs> he is with you every step of the way. And yes, he knows the circumstances, but he also addresses your circumstances because he's with you in this journey. And that's one of the great and tremendous blessings of the new covenant of being a christian is is being a member of the new covenant where god now makes his dwelling place with the church when we gather and he makes his dwelling place your very person in each and every christian that's the degree of intimacy which a christian has with god is god with us absolutely we sing at Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us. He's not only with us, like in some sort of principle. He's not simply watching from above like some heavenly, uh, heavenly fact checker. He is here. He dwells in the church, which is the temple of the living God. And while he's here, he knows what you need and he gives us what we need in our darkest moments, that we may persevere. 
Paul needed to persevere in his mission. You and I need to persevere in the faith and in our mission, you see. Now, what you think you need to help you keep going and what God knows you need, very often in my experience, are two different things, <laughs> right? Because I know what I think I need to get to that next step or get through this or get there, but God knows what you really need. And Paul might have thought what? He might have thought, what I need to get out of here. <laughs> what I need to get out of this prison and out from control from the Roman Empire. And the Lord is saying, the Roman Empire is going to be your ticket. <laughs> you have no idea. What you need is to stay put. And what you need is what? To be encouraged and be courageous. So God knows what he needed. There's a difference there then between knowledge and his presence. There's a difference. And the great glory of being a Christian, part of the, the tremendous benefit is in the new covenant is that God has not only, uh, is not only for us in Christ, but he's with us in Christ. I will dwell in their midst. They will be my people, and I will be their God. And that comes to a heightened level right now in the Christian church as a result of Christ and his work. It's going to be an even higher experience when sin is out of the way and we live with him in the new heavens and the new earth. But I want you to see that what, 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 the, what some of the theologians ever since the Reformation referred to as the double grace, the double grace that comes to us through Christ, that, that in our union with Christ, when we are united with him, he is both for us in a legal sense, therefore we are justified by faith, and he is with us in a vital sense. He is in us. He's, he's, he's now dwelling among us, you see. Sometimes we illustrate that in our discipleship classes. Many of you are familiar with, with that, uh, the great statue of Jesus in Rio de Janeiro where he stands there with his two arms open. That statue's duplicated in many places. And what, it, what it can depict is when you come to Christ by the grace of God because of his great love with which he has loved you and open your eyes. When you come to him, you are embraced by both arms. You are embraced, on the one hand, by his, by his legal arm, if we put it that way, that he is for you. Christ died for you. He is your payment. He is your justification. He is your righteousness. But it's more than having a status. Praise God for a new status. Justified. He also embraces you with his other arm, what they call the vital arm. Which is what? That Christ is in you. He is with you also. And when you come to Christ, you come to the whole Christ. Not just one side. <laughs> he embraces you with both arms. So on the one hand, Christ for you, you are justified. On the other hand, Christ with you and in you, you will be sanctified throughout this life. Why? Because he is with you. And so these are conjoined. They're conjoined, but they are distinct. You can never receive half a Christ. 
you receive the whole Christ, just like the sun's light and the sun's heat. The light is not the heat, and the heat is not the light, but if you have one, you'll have a degree of the other. And so you, you need to see that. God was with Paul because he was not only manifesting himself that day, but he was in Paul, just the same way he is in you. And it's to us to remember in our journey and in this mission and remember and trust what he says when he said to the disciples, when it comes to the mission, which is what? Making disciples, Matthew 28. He said, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, if Paul, great, this, this great apostle, who I'm sure had heard that in some way or another, had been communicated to him, nevertheless, he needed reminding. I am with you. Circumstances don't seem like it. <laughs> and sometimes they, they can get very low, like prison for the sake of Christ like flogging, like your own people trying to kill you. But nevertheless, Christ was still with them. What he spoke to him was simply a reminder of that. And as a Christian, you know that he is with you in what sense and that his spirit dwells in you. Remember Jesus, the night before he was, he was being arrested or crucified and it was about to be arrested and he knew that the disciples were going to experience a heart-breaking, soul-crushing experience of watching Jesus be arrested because of Judas's betrayal and then hearing about his crucifixion. So he, knowing their hearts were going to be broken, knowing that they were still pretty much clueless, the Lord says to him, and John records it in chapter 14, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, meaning another one like me, to be with you forever. Many of you know that that, that word is parakletos, and it's sometimes transliterated, paraclete, and it means to come alongside, and I think the primary sense is to come alongside us as our advocate, and in here he goes on to say, as one who will keep leading them into truth. And, and so he is going to be with them and in them, he says to them. For he dwells with you and will be in you. And that took place, you know, on the day of Pentecost. If you're a Christian, that took place the moment you heard the gospel and trusted God. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And how profound is this thinking? It's, it's, it's almost silly sometimes to just hear myself say it and not be thoroughly impacted by what I am saying. That the living God dwells inside of me and you. What a thought, huh? May God take us to a level of appreciation of the extent of his mercy and love. What Jesus went on to say to them, let me show you how deep it gets. In that same context of John 14, he said to them in verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we, listen to this, we, Father and Son, 
will come to him and make our home with him. Father, Son, Spirit, abide in you in a mysterious way. Amazing. And that's how the gospel keeps moving forward. How is it that people trust God and do tremendous things like Paul and persevere in the face of such things because they never do it in their own strength. They do it because the Father, Son, and Spirit abide with them and is present with them and with you too if you're a Christian. So be convinced, Christian. Be convinced, brother and sister, as sure as the Lord stood by Paul on that night, and I understand that was a, a different sort of thing, a tremendous manifestation, but as sure as he was with Paul, he is with you. That we believe by faith, and we accept by faith, we confess by faith. He abides in you, and you say, well, why is it important to think that way? Because when we doubt God's love to that extent that he is present with us all the time and that he not only knows things but it matters to him that he cares for us when we are not thoroughly convinced of that we don't step out as much in venturesome uh, ideas and ways of serving the lord or we aren't as generous out of fear of losing too much we won't take steps in the kingdom of god for the expansion of the kingdom of God. How is it that churches get started? It's because someone believes that God is with them. Because <laughs> otherwise it's going to fail. So it's very important when we believe these words, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. May the Spirit give us courage and say, you know what, I'm going to love this person, I'm going to do it sacrificially, and it may, it may bring hardship in my life, but you know what, the Lord is with me. He's with me, he'll sustain me, and so forth. The last affirmation, the third affirmation, was the affirmation of the Lord's divine sovereignty over Paul's circumstances. Verse 11 again, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, or keep up your courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So we've heard the exhortation there, but there's also the commendation there, right? You have testified about me. You succeeded. It wasn't all a disaster. It didn't come about as you wished it or planned it, but you did it, and then he affirms him of his control over what's happening in Paul's life. When he says, as you have done so in Jerusalem, as you have testified about me, so you must testify also in Rome. That's in a tremendous moment in Paul's mind, I imagine. You must testify also in Rome. So I am getting to Rome. <laughs> you must Testify also in Rome. And it's interesting here in the, in the original language here, this is not an imperative. It's not a commandment. So in other words, he's not saying, Paul, you're doing wrong. You must preach in Rome. What he's saying is you've done great. You testified. And present tense, indicative reality, you're going to do it in Rome too. That's what he's saying to him. 
And I'm sure Paul uh, heard it that way, received it that way. What the Lord is doing, he's assuring Paul that despite how things look, his hands are in control of all the circumstances in Paul's life. And what seemed like abject failure is going to actually be the very means that God uses for Paul to fulfill his holy ambition of preaching in Rome. That was Paul's great ambition, you know, and I'm sure, again, he was wondering. But here was what we might call the Lord's divine, sovereign must, right? Must. Not in the sense of a command, must, but in a sense of a, an, an assured reality. This is going to happen, Paul. And so it is absolutely certain. Now, Paul had no idea how it was all going to come about, and it didn't come about, I'm sure, at all, at all, in a way that he would expect. The next day, he's going to find out that it comes about through his being saved from a plot to be killed by his own nephew. He's going to be saved again by, by the same Roman tribune that he's going to put on horseback, that it's going to be, come about by pleading for Caesar, going through various legal battles, and then being escorted all the way through Rome, going through a storm, going through a shipwreck, finally arriving in Rome, and then being put in house arrest. Through many dangerous toils and snares, but you know what? It came about. (laughs) The must of Jesus. The divine must of Jesus, our Lord, will always be fulfilled. And so Paul was lifted up. Yes, it came about. How did it come about? Let's take a little peek at the very last two verses of this book. We'll be there in a few weeks. But chapter 28, Paul's in Rome now. He's in house arrest after all those things that happened that I told you. Through many dangers, toils, and snares. Verse 30, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. It came about. You must. And it happened. I don't know all, the, I don't know all of the Lord's particular specific musts for each of you or myself. But we do know the universal musts that come to us through the gospel. You must be sanctified. Why? Because he's with you. You must persevere to the end in faith, despite all your ups and downs. Why? Because he holds you fast. You must rise from the dead, be given a resurrection body, be glorified, and dwell with God in the new heavens and new earth into eternity. You must do that. Why? Because it's his divine will for you and my life if you're a Christian. There are many musts, you see, and God will fulfill every one of them, the things he's promised in the new covenant. Now, the specific must for you and me, I don't know. (laughs) But they may come about in strange ways, through many dangerous toils and snares, right? Yes, we sang the song. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. I went to Jerusalem with a love offering. I got slapped in the face, and they tried to kill me. I was saved by a Roman, and then my nephew 
Then I was put on a horse. And then I went through three trials. And then I went through a storm, almost died. And I, and I took over the whole thing. <laughs> I had that shipwreck. Then I found myself in Rome, fulfilling my dreams, preaching the gospel unhindered. God moves in a mysterious way. Paul needed that night, in that dark moment, he needed reassurance. And some of you need that same sense of assurance, whatever lies ahead for you. What? You need an assurance of his knowledge, his presence, his sovereignty. He knows his servant. He's with his servant. He's in control of the circumstances surrounding the life experiences of his servant. By way of application, I want to just point out two things I think we should take from this. One, I want to stress the importance of having holy ambitions for the sake of the mission, for the sake of the gospel. Paul had a holy ambition. What was it? I want to preach in Rome. I want to get to the heart of the Roman Empire and preach Christ crucified. To the Greeks, it's foolishness. But I want to go. He had a holy ambition. Without vision, nothing gets started. It didn't come about as he planned, but without a holy ambition, nothing gets moving, beloved. What ambition do you have? What I mean is this. Have you thought long enough about how to connect the fact that you yourself are called to make disciples? How have you connected the need to testify to Jesus in your life circumstances, be it in your work or be it in your business, be it in your your campus, be it as a single, be it as as a parent married? Have you thought at all how God might work through you for the sake of the gospel? Do you have any ambition? Are you praying for any opportunity? Are you looking for anyone? That's how things get started. That's how this church got started. It was an ambition, 1994, and then 95, and then by October it began small, but it began, it was a holy ambition, and God said yes. And again, it came about not in ways I expected, but it did. And throughout the years, if you've been here a long time, you know we've had many Holy ambitions, you know, that we've set before the Lord. There's been several church plants here in the States and in other countries. Not all of them made it, but many of them did. Not all survive to this day, but several do. (laughs) Holy ambitions. Right now, it's the mission to the Spanish-speaking world, and and it's, it's the... Christian Ministerial Academy in Costa Rica. It is a church plant in Venetia, a church plant in Folsom. All these things are happening simultaneously. What are they? They are holy ambitions we hope the Lord will use, you see. What's yours? Sometimes our ambitions are cast into doubt. For Paul, it was prison. One of ours was, if you were here at least eight years ago and, and, and beyond maybe, was in the Hispanic ministry. The goal to see the Hispanic community in this area hear the gospel, come to faith, start a Hispanic ministry, and it went disastrously for a while. That very dark time that we went through here was cast in doubt. But God used it to do a greater work, you see, that we are experiencing 
right now, you see. But how did it all begin? It began with a holy ambition, some sort of vision. I hope you pray that way. And then secondly, if, we, if, if that's true, then I want to emphasize the importance of placing our ambitions before God. That is, placing them before Him. It's great to have these holy ambitions, but let's recognize that ultimately He is the one in control and He is the one who knows how it's going to happen. I'm sure Paul had to do that several times. Realizing that when we set out to do something for the Lord, as I just mentioned with uh, the Hispanic ministry, there will be roadblocks. Paul faced many obstacles in this whole journey uh, in the book of Acts. Many roadblocks, many obstacles, many frustrations, you see. And so will you, so have we. And what we need to learn is that instead of resenting these roadblocks, we need to learn to recognize them as coming from the Lord ultimately, and He has some purposes. I'll be the first to admit my first reaction is not, great, another roadblock. Awesome, another setback, tremendous, you know. I confess that's not my first reaction. <laughs> But what I see the Lord teaching me and teaching us through this whole journey through the book of Acts is that when these roadblocks come, that instead of resenting them, that the Lord is calling us to turn to Him, to seek Him, and present our burdens to Him prayerfully. Because why? One, we've seen these through the book of Acts. They may be for our, they may be for our benefit as a warning. Paul was told, you need to leave Jerusalem. They're not going to listen to what you have to say about me earlier, he was told that. That roadblock must have frustrated him, but it was a warning. It was for his very protection. Sometimes we set out on something and God stops us cold turkey. Why? Because it was for our good. It's a warning. Sometimes a roadblock comes and it's a means for our purification. Why? Because somewhere along the way, our holy ambition has gotten all mixed up with fleshly desires. Pride. And that often happens in all sorts of ministry contexts, and God puts a stop to it, a roadblock, a setback. Why? Well, because you're not right. And that should bring us to a place where we pray and say, search my heart, O oh God, and show me if there be a wrong way in me, and lead me in the righteous way. And thirdly, I think this one we take from this context here, verse 11 uh, sometimes these roadblocks, we are not to resent them. Why? Because they turn out to be the very means God is going to use to fulfill your ambition. And that's what happened with Paul. This roadblock was the way he made it to Rome. <laughs> this roadblock is what God had designed to bring him to a place of testifying in three separate trials, each time moving up the ladder of imperial authority all the way to Rome. You see. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. We'll see that in Paul's life in a few weeks. O fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. And we must be honest, that might be in this life or not. It may not be till the kingdom of God. 
So in this life, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, what you feel, what you see, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. If you don't believe that, we'll never trust the truth that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, those who are called according to His purpose. And what is, what is our side of this equation? It's simply to, by God's grace, l- keep living out the refrain, which is what? So God, we trust in you. Oh God, we trust in you when tears are great and comforts few. Oh God, we trust in you. Some of you know the story of William Cooper who wrote that hymn. He was a, a poet in the days of John Newton and George Whitfield and, and others. And he wrote tremendous hymns, but I don't know that some of you know the story of, of William Cooper who wrote this great, beautiful poem about seeing God's grace and mercy in the difficult providences of life that he struggled with profound, profound uh, bouts of deep depression and it began early in his life when his mother died when he was age six and then his father sent him away to a boarding school and he went through bout after bout of profound depression four massive ones in his life that lasted for long periods he described it this way he says i was struck with such a dejection of spirits as none but they who have felt the same can have the least conception of Day and night I was upon the rack, lying down in horror and rising up in despair. I presently lost all relish for those studies to which before I had been closely attached. The classics had no longer any charms for me. I had need of something more salutary than amusement, but I had not one to direct me where to find it. Well, eventually he was pointed to Christ, you know. But it didn't take all that away. His life was like one long accumulation of pain and suffering and mental anguish. He pondered escaping it all the time. He lost his grip on reality. He attempted to take his life three times. He was put into an asylum as was done in those days. He wrestled with utter despair and hopelessness even after becoming a Christian, you see. And so this is my point. To think that these words came from a heart like that, from someone who experienced that kind of pain, is a testimony to the sustaining grace and love of God. May he sustain you, may he give you an ever-increasing insight into his glory and grace, and may he comfort you in all your difficulties. He is sufficient. Let's pray.